There is a lot of beauty and majesty of God in this text, um, and it is it is absolutely gorgeous. And yet there are real challenges uh, with it. For one, it's one of the few books that never references God once directly. Doesn't say, just like Esther, never says God's name directly. And yet it's never been questioned as being part of the canon. It's, it's never been one of the, any of the books in which they have groups come together and debate. It's one of the five books that, I forget the, the name of the Jewish holiday, but that they recite out loud together. And what's funny is, even in the rabbinical tradition, so in the Jewish tradition, there's two very different stances on this, which is when you sing this and when you chant the Hebrew, depending on your perspective, you need to be chanting this somberly or you need to be chanting this joyously and excitedly. And that's what we're going to look at today is what is the context of what's going on here, what are our interpretation approaches, and then from our interpretation approaches, how does that change what we're seeing in the text? And I will say, I have never seen so much disagreement on which approach. Usually you have, okay, there's 90% agree over here and 10% over here. But there is definitely um, some question as to how to approach this. So I think uh, that's what we're going to uh, look to deal with a bit today. So just to get some technical facts out of the way, um, it's written in likely the 10th century BC. It's, it's hard to tell, um, a little bit hard to date. It would seem that that is the most likely scenario. I would say those who are, are liberal scholars and not the ones I'd really wanna purport their teachings, their, um, uh-oh. Oh, uh, their, their um, belief is that maybe this was later, much later, um, as tends to be the case. They, they believe, oh, this is writing much later on, kind of referring back about Solomon and things going on. But uh, it would seem that all the writing, it, that it would belong in the era of Solomon. We would know better the date if we were confident that Solomon was the author. Uh, highest probability, let's say we put it at 51% and then everyone else, could be, it could be anyone else. Um, the reality is we're told Solomon not only wrote, um, I think it was like four or 5,000 proverbs, he also wrote 1,005 songs. So depending on if this is written for Solomon, by Solomon, all of that, it, it might uh, change some perspective or might not. Either way, um, it is clearly written and there is some connection to Solomon because if you look in the Song of Solomon, you look in Songs chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the Song of Songs which is Solomon's. So it says that, and yet almost all scholars will say, probably, likely, Solomon's. It's, it's a standalone piece of, of music. And what's wonderful about it is, if it is Solomon's, well, you're getting the best one. Out of 1,005, it's the song of songs. It is like the 1% of the 1%. This is the one that made it um, most, uh, most notably. Uh, but regardless of author, we can look into the text and look at the material. Um, we can see it as, if we see it as Solomon, it can be helpful for one of the two interpretations we're gonna look at. Um, but in general, knowing the author um, confidently is, is less of the priority. Um, many scholars would put it, and I would say, after studying it uh, very in-depthly over the last couple of weeks, I would agree that this probably belongs as 
in the wisdom literature along with Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, and Job. It should be four of them together. And ultimately what you'll see is I, what I propose this as is Proverbs is a book for the boys, the Song of Solomon is a book for the girls, and that they're a companion pieces. Um, but, um, but yes, this should belong, in my opinion, in the wisdom literature, uh, but it is the way it's described in terms of genre, wisdom, music, poetry, all these different things that you could lump it in with psalms, you could lump it in with the wisdom literature, but like many books, they cover multiple genres. Okay, let's look at what the interpretation, interpretation methods could be. So first we're gonna cover what's called the shepherd interpretation, which is this idea that the Song of Solomon has three main characters, three protagonists. And these three main characters are Solomon and his harem, his concubines, his love court that we're told in 1 Kings 10 where he has uh, 700 wives, 300 concubines, and uh, more virgins still in his, um, in his court and in his, uh, in his marriage. And then, um, uh, so the, the perspective of the three protagonists would be, you have Solomon and his court, and you have this woman in that court who is, she's in the court belonging to Solomon, and yet she longs for, right, stable boy, shepherd boy, out there who is her true love, but she cannot have. So there's this element of Solomon is trying to woo her away, keep her in his court so that he might marry her, because we'll get to the middle of the book is when we have the wedding feast, that he might marry her. Um, whereas for the shepherd boy and her, she loves, and her name is Shulamite in this, which is the female version of Solomon. A little strange, you have Solomon pursuing Solomon, um, but you have this, this woman being pursued and uh, a shepherd boy and, and this romance. So looking at this method, before we, we jump into the second, we're going to look at um, a couple of different structures. We have uh, in Psalm 1, 2 through 2, 7, we have the temptation of Solomon's harem. So what we have is this idea that there's wealth and opulence. Join, stay a part of my harem. Stay a part of this court and officially join the harem through marriage. And then after that, you get into 2.8 through 3.5, and you have the arrival of true love. So here comes her shepherd boy. She'll reference the shepherd boy before, but he's not actually in the scene in this perspective, and she's not talking to her shepherd boy in this perspective. Um, and then after that, we have the arrival of Solomon. And then lastly, we have the arrival of the woman. Um, the arrival of Solomon's 3.6 through chapter 8.4, and then arrival of the woman is song 8.5 through 14. Um, and, and so you have this three-person love triangle tension. If you look um, at song, chapter 1, we're going to read a few verses here, so Whoever uh, is, uh, got the mic or is willing to uh, read out some of this uh, beautiful uh, words for us, please read verses uh, 2 through 4 of the Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. So right there, we have, we have 
you can see many Bibles have the she, others, he. You'll see who the audience is for the, the stanzas. But on the woman um, proclaiming this, you have what is a critical verse on how you decide which one of the two interpretations I'm proposing that you take. In verse 4, you have, draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. So this idea of fleeing the king's chambers is what might immediately come to mind. And if that is the case, then the shepherd interpretation is a strong approach, thinking of this as she is trying to leave or avoid Solomon and his harem's chambers, and she longs for her true love. And then we see further down in um, whoever has the mic next, if you'd read um, uh, verses, uh, where's, uh, verse seven, uh, verse seven of, of chapter one. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where your pasture, where your pasture, your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one of the veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Okay, so we see a shepherd has now entered the scene. So in this, in this interpretation, you see, okay, we have three. And when I say enters the scene, that's probably a bad way of wording it because in this poetry, in this music, he hasn't actually entered the scene. She is speaking about her love, but none of the he's here yet are him speaking because he's not on the stage. Um, but she is, she is singing out for him, wanting this, wanting this shepherd boy. Um, uh, she wants to be able to come along the flock see him, um, to visit him, uh, and if, when you pair that with, the king has brought me in his chambers and we need to run, and she desires her shepherd boy, this is how you get what's called the shepherd interpretation. So then, um, if, we, if we look uh, lastly at, um, let's see here, verses 2-8, if someone read verse 2 or chapter 2, verse 8 of that song. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. Okay, so now we have enter the scene. Here he comes, and now he is coming into the scene. Um, she's not just longing for him. He is now there in the scene. Okay, so we'll, we'll pause here on the shepherd interpretation, but the, the idea here of... Men, almost every theme that got brought up by you all could apply 100% to this. You have thoughts of fidelity because there, there is the wooing through expensive materialistic things of this woman. You can have a comfortable life. And we're going to see in a moment she has a hard life to start with um, when she's longing for this shepherd boy. And you also have, the, so you have this luring of Solomon, and yet her true love is a man of humble humble upbringing and humble wealth, and yet she longs for, for him, and then there's this wooing. So you have this fidelity feeling and this, this commitment, this faith in each other, and you go through all these elements of the relationship, and you can pull out a lot of wisdom from there. So I think it is a, uh, a potentially valid interpretation, but if already my setup is not there, 
where I want to spend the rest of the time is what I think is the more appropriate translation. And the reason we even spend time on that is because the last thing I would want you to think is, oh, there is consensus on this. This is the right approach. This is how you're supposed to take it. No, this is how PJ thinks you're supposed to take it um, based on my understanding and study. But even in our, um, uh, the Nick, Pete, and myself, all of us have in our seminary classes taken an Old Testament overview class. And the professor is saying, here's two approaches. Uh, benefits of one versus the other. So I don't want it to be that way. And yet, I feel convicted enough that the, met, the approach we're going to have on the other side here um, is going to be the one that I would recommend um, how you handle that. And so before we get into it, we're going to kind of look at some of the challenges with the interpretation we just, uh, we just talked about, this, these three parties rather than just two. If you look first in verse... Um, in verse 4, you see the first example when it says, draw me after you, let us run. Uh, verse 4 of chapter 1, the king has brought me into his chambers. First of all, I would say this would be a really sharp turn in a song. If you are singing about kiss me on the mouth, uh, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth, for your love is better than wine. And then you suddenly, mid-verse, take a sharp turn to say, get me away from him. It is a abrupt turn, and it would have to happen over and over and over in this song, where you have mid-dialogue um, from one perspective, where you turn audience, and then you turn audience again, back and forth, and you're having to make that interpretation on, oh, it's a good thing, that must be about the shepherd, it's a bad thing, it's about Solomon and his harem, which does not seem to fit in the flow of music of the day, um, I would say even music today, you tend to have a verse about something, it's building, and it's it's talking about something, and then it transitions to a new topic. Even if it counters what you just sang, you transition into a new topic rather than kind of um, turn right, turn left in terms of your audience. Then additionally, I would say an issue is that there are, are references to the like, things like nard and myrrh and these wonderful things that the shepherd, her love, is giving her that clearly have to be the shepherd based on the way she's describing her love for this man, which nard uh, is like the most expensive perfume it gets. And um, I get that a stinky shepherd boy should probably use it, but can't afford it. So there's just elements that seem a bit incongruous. Um, and then you add in, there's her saying things to, in the, um, if I try to get this right, second person, like she's saying you as if she's talking to the young man. She's not, she'll say him, talk about him in the third person, but then in, even in verse four, we even see the example, draw me after you. Well, he hasn't arrived yet. He's not there yet. So she's saying you, it could be him still that she's speaking out into the general air, pretending in her head she's talking to him, but it's a bit odd because she's, he's not on the scene, not until later in chapter two, um, verse eight. So those are some of the challenges with ha inserting a third person. And I say they're challenges. They're, they're not something that are absolutely impossible. Some of the beauty of, of music is that there is flexibility in, it, like music requires interpretation more than just normal scripture. There is thought, there's imagery, there is imagination, there's a, an understanding needed. And so I would not say it's an impossible one. But what I'm going to propose instead is the lover's interpretation, and that it's this chiastic structure. 
And what I will propose is that, in, if anything, it's actually the opposite of this less than idealistic situation in which you have this struggle between a, um, a uh, someone who's pursuing you um, inappropriately in Solomon and you have versus the young man um, who is your true love. Instead, I would say perhaps the optimist in me is, is biased to see this as well, but it is the idealistic love in so the song. Instead, this is about a man and a woman loving each other appropriately, consistently being told, do not stir up love or do not awaken love until it's time. And, and having to have restraint, because there's desire, there's him inviting her, bring, trying to bring her in. There's a wedding, trouble in paradise. Then her, she calls him back, reconcile, come back. And then after this, there is reconciliation and, a, and the newfound passion and desire that was there at the beginning. And I think this is what it is. I would also say that by doing it this way, I think we see it even more as a connected to the book of Proverbs. Whoever has the mic, if you wouldn't mind looking at Proverbs uh, chapter 5, verse, oh, did I write down the verse? Chapter 5, I think it's like 17 or 18. Um, did I write it down? Hang on here. 5, 18 and 19. Proverbs 5, verse 18 and 19. Oh, thanks, Jane. Sorry, I was in um, Song of Solomon. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, um, this is 100% on me. Switched gears on us here. Okay, Proverbs 5, 16? Uh, it was Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. 18. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. So, one, oh, sorry, just keep going. I'm, I apologize. I'm not there, so go which, ahead. Keep going. Which verses again? I'm sorry. 19 through 19? 18. That was it? Okay. Okay. 18 um, and 19? That, that was 18 and 19. I'm sorry. Okay. No, no, no. You're, you're fine. So you hear there this... this language that sounds just like the Song of Solomon, right? Just this, um, that your desire, it's, you have Solomon t telling his sons, I, I pray that you have this desire, this deep desire and passion. You have the description again of her physical beauty and that you love her physical beauty. Um, and um, and you, so you see this, this kind of mirrored connection where you go, okay, I can see how there's some of that there. But um, let me uh, point out a couple of things, and then um, I'll read a quote here that I think is, is kind of a helpful way to put it. But uh, if anyone were to take a guess, and you can shout it out, we don't need the mic, guess how many times does Proverbs refer to a son or sons? Throw out a number. Did you say five? And what did you say, a hundred? All right. What? 500, woo, okay, 41 times, 41 times, all right? So 41 times. How many times does it refer to a daughter in Proverbs? That's five too many, zero, zero. Now, it talks, of, it's absolutely wisdom for our daughters. I want my daughter to become Proverbs 31, 10 through uh, 28 or where the chapter ends. That's absolutely wisdom for my daughter, and yet the audience is Solomon talking to his sons. And then in the song, we have the woman's perspective being sung 
53% of the time, and the man's, uh, let me, I have the number here, I don't want to get it wrong. Uh, da, da, da. Oh, I thought I had it written down. It's in the 30s. It's like 33, 34%. Then you have this other, which I would actually add to the women's because in this interpretation, the others are then these other women that she's imploring. Do not stir up love. She's trying to give wisdom to other women. Um, and we have this other talking, these others singing out. It's almost like the, you have the, the man and woman singing to each other, and then in the back you have a choir of, of all women that are singing the joys of their marriage and exulting and, and praising. So, again here, now the man of, uh, is speaking only 34% of the time in this book, right? And we have women um, speaking quite a bit more. And so I would say this, again, is, uh, is, falls into that. And here's a quote from a, uh, one of the commentaries says, the book of Proverbs can be called a book for boys, the word son is used over 40 times. The word daughter is never used. My son, stay away from that kind of girl and don't marry this kind of girl, but marry and save yourself for that girl. Um, <laughs> Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, an aggressive paraphrase. Uh, that's how the book ends, quite intentionally. For Proverbs is a book for the boys. The Song of Songs is a book for girls, and its message to girls is patience then passion, or uncompromised purity now, unquenchable passion then. I'll put it this way. In Proverbs, the young lad is told to take a cold shower. In the Song of Songs, the young lassie is told to take a cold shower. So, uh, a little bit uh, <coughs> older uh, text that this is being taken from uh, based on some of the wording there, but it's this sense of woman giving wisdom, even though it's coming from Solomon or whomever the author might be, it is a woman giving wisdom to young women, and Proverbs is a man giving wisdom to young men. Um, and we will see this, this uh, approach going through. So let's, uh, whoever has the microphone, let's look back at chapter one, and if you would, um, read verse four of Song, a Song of Solomon 1, and then go straight into verse 7. J 4, go straight down and read verse 7. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And then verse 7. Verse 7, yes, please. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Thank you. So this is where the challenge would come back to this lover's interpretation, which is, wait a minute, you have a king and you have a shepherd. How can you have a shepherd and a king? Any thoughts come to mind when you hear shepherd king? Solomon is the son of David, a shepherd king. Who could this be pointing to? Who will be a future great shepherd and also a king? I would say it is 100% that these two can come together peacefully as a shepherd and king that when he is described regularly in both his work, hard-working nature as a shepherder, as a, or as a shepherd, 
and in his royal grandeur as a king, they can be reconciled. And that the shepherd king, if Solomon is speaking about himself and speaking presently, he is a shepherd king. He comes from a line of shepherds. He's a shepherd's son. But he's also a king. And just as, as David was a son of a shepherd, Jesse, he also is a shepherd and then became a king. So I would say um, a shepherd king is who we're talking about throughout this text. And so, again, I would agree with those who reference things like the church, Christ and his bride. Those things can be where we go. And I would say where ultimately why this interpretation resonates with my understanding better and with what I'm seeing in the text better is because you see the connections to Christ and the relationship with Christ, even when, in this case, we have trouble. What is the, what is the call after the trouble? It's an invitation, please come back, return to me, and then you have re- reconciliation. So I would say the shepherd king, makes, it makes sense. It makes sense why it could be both a king and a shepherd. Let's look at now this chiastic structure. We're going to read only a portion of verses from all of these. We've, we've read a good amount from the beginning, which is this desire. We've, we've heard it say a, a lot of things here. I'm going to read real quickly uh, verse five, six, uh, 5 and 6. Uh, I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. So we have this, this woman, Shulamite, who is not, does not have her own vineyard, is not keeping her own vineyard. She is, being, she is desiring to be fair-skinned. In that culture at that time, being fair-skinned meant you were probably wealthy, got to stay indoors, you didn't need to be out getting water from the well and you know the, the, the things that come with sun. And yet she's saying, do not gaze at me because I'm dark. And why is it? It's because her mother's sons, so her brothers, are angry with her, and they make her work the the vineyard. They send her out to work the vineyard. And then verse 7, talking about the shepherd, tell you who my soul loves, where you pasture your flock. This is straight up, tell me where you're going to be so we can have a moment while while the shepherds take a nap, while the sheep rest so we can see each other for a moment in the midst of the day, so we can come up and have some time to sit together and be together, have a meal. It is this lover's pursuit of this time being together. And so we see this desire coming out. She's talking about the challenges of her, of her beauty from the sun, and he responds in verse 8, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, he tells her where to find him. Follow in the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tent. So he tells her where to go, and then he goes on to talk more about her beauty. And then you have you, this others, this chorus, we will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. And then it goes into her talking about him and speaking about him, them being on the couch together, the nard giving forth fragrance, her, belo- uh, her beloved is the sachet of myrrh. So we have this, this beautiful, um, in particular, scent. So immediately, right, this is where, again, if you're using this as wisdom literature, I would say there is something to be said for young men, take a shower, use some soap, pursue the woman rightly. And this doesn't end after marriage. Stay clean, present yourself well before your bride. And uh, so you have this desire. You have this desire and pursuit. 
And then in this next portion, so in what I have is B here, in the chiasm, we have this invitation, his invitation. And if uh, whoever has a microphone would read verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And for perspective, this is the, the woman singing um, about uh, his voice calling her. Chapter 2, 8 through 11. The voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away, for behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. So we have this time period, this this, here he comes, behold, this heralding, he's coming, he's coming, this excitement and um, uh, this invitation, this invitation that's coming. And it goes, if you go all the way through uh, verse 17, it's this talk about uh, a lot of geography and this beautiful, you have garden imagery, you have a whole lot going on describing this beautiful setting where they are coming together, this, this invitation to come be together. And then we move from there into they're married. They're married. And what I should add in here is at almost all of these turns, um, or at least three of them, we have this uh, phrase. Um, let me see the, uh, you see it in verse 7 as an example. So right before this begins, it says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you stir, not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So she's talking about passion, desire, all of this. And then she says, young women, do not stir up love until it pleases, until the right time. Desire, pursue, love the other person, but do not stir it up. Do not, what I would say is, enter into an inappropriate sexual relationship until the appropriate time and design that God has had between a bride and her husband. So then we have this invitation, um, and then we have the wedding. So. Uh, they finally get to be together. You see it's quite a large portion from 3-1 through 5-1. Uh, and I would ask whoever has the mic, please read chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. 6 through 11, okay. Uh, what is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, and with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seed of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Okay, you have a wedding processional here. The wedding is here. You end up getting his, the, the man's perspective, um, presumably Solomon, of, of adoring his bride in, through the rest of this, uh, not until verse 16. Second half of verse 16, she says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. It is time. There has been a marriage. Praise the Lord. It is time for the beautiful intimacy that comes with marriage and it should be celebrated, and she can now say, come into the garden. It, it, you are welcome. And so she rejoices over this in his love to her, 
And he then goes into verse five, in chapter five, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride, I gathered my myrrh, my spice, I ate my honeycomb with my honey, I drank my wine with my milk. He, there is a description of passion that is beautiful and loving and the type of passion that I hope every marriage in this church and every Christian marriage has for the intimacy that God has blessed them with. And so after going through that, you'd think, great time to end the book. Woo, we got there. This whole thing's about chastity. Let's just stay there. You get married, enjoy passion, happily ever after, Disney movie done, right? But we have trouble in paradise in chapter five. Uh, starting all right after that, you have verse two, or you have chapter, uh, in verse two of chapter five, she says, I slept, but my heart was awake, a sound. My beloved is knocking. She, she wakes up with a jolt. And then if um, whoever has the microphone, if you would read uh, song five and then verses six through eight. I, I opened, <clears throat> I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone, gone and gone. My soul failed me when I, he spoke. I sought him, but he found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil. Those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughter of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell that you tell him I am sick with love. So I can attest, I've been dating my wife since I was 17 years old. I've, uh, you could not get me away from being near her, whether it was her basketball games, um, any, any excuse. I mean, helping a church plant two hours away, because that also meant who was going to be in the church, her that I'm helping, right? You, you find any and every reason to be around your beloved. And then now... Suddenly, you know, hon, I've got a sermon to prep. Can I go out back, have a cigar, and do that? Last night, hey, hon, we've got an ASU football game. I know it only eats up six hours of a day. You don't have work. Can I go do that? Um, can I, oh, and you know what? We want to have a cigar before we're going to talk about the things of God, good things. And you're like, wait a minute. When I was 17, I would have sold my dad down the river. I would have said, who cares about ASU? I hate, I'm not going to even, shouldn't even say it on a recording. I originally wanted to go down to another educational institution because it meant I could be closer to her. Agree. Oh, the sin of youth. Um, but this is what it is, right? Like this is so, the Song of Solomon resonates so much because I go, yeah, why am I not pursuing my wife the way I pursued her when I was 17? Is she any less worthy of pursuit? Why am I done pursuing her? Should the bride of Christ pursue Christ any less after having been saved? No, all the more. And so you see here, there's this trouble in paradise. She wakes up. Where's my beloved? Where, he, where has he gone? It's Sunday night. He's watching football with the dudes, right? Or whatever it might be. Whatever that thing is, he's not here. Um, um, oh, man, I've given my wife too much scripture to come at me with uh, here. But, um, but, but you see this, this trouble in paradise has happened. She cannot find him. She wants him. And you even have after she says, these same women who are singing in the background, oh, we exalt your love. She says, if you find them, tell him to come home. Tell him to come back to me. And she, they say to her, what is your beloved more than another beloved? Oh, most beautiful among women, what is your beloved more than another beloved? that you thus adjure us. 
Like suddenly they've turned on her and go, like this is the plight of all of us. Why, is, why should you expect that your dude comes back? That your dude desires only you, right? And so we see this, this sad image of what marriage was in the day and the context. And I would say what our marriages probably have way too much of as well, which is unfortunately men either pursuing other women, other delights, other pleasures than the pleasure of their wife uh, and the joy and fragrance of their wife. But what do we get? Praise the Lord in 8.5 through the end of 8, um, ending the book. Whoever has the, um, whoever has the microphone, if you would read song 8.10 through 14. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Rob, at Rob Hamon. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring its fruit for a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand, and the keepers of the fruit, two hundred. And then, um, so what you're, seeing, what you're seeing here is this, she says in verse 10, she finds peace. And if you realize what she says in verse 11, talking about having a vineyard, and she's talking about these keepers, well, earlier, if you remember, when she began, when she desired this man, she was being forced out by her brothers to go work the vineyard. And she talked about not having a vineyard for her own. But here we go, we're at the end, and she speaks of the greatness that because of her beloved, she now has a vineyard. She has been fulfilled, she has been taken care of and given, um, given security. And uh, he says, oh, you who dwell in the gardens with companions, listening for your voice, let me hear it. He desires her again, and she says, make haste, my beloved, and be like the a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Make haste, come back and come back quickly. What you need to be careful with, and I will caution, is if you make the shepherd boy, uh, the shepherd king, Jesus, and you try to insert that a little too much, you will see that, I mean, there's, there's sin by the man. There, he is not being a good enough husband. So I would say be cautious there. And yet, there's clearly this imagery we're given out of Ephesians 5, talking about the marriage and this bride being presented before God. And I would say, this is where my dream, having studied this better, is that this is not a book hidden at home, not taught onto our kids, but instead, what could be more beautiful than some kind of arrangement where you have the men at church publicly singing the men's part, and you have the women singing the women's part, back and forth on opposite sides singing to each other right? It is like all other scripture, it is meant to be out there to testify to the glory of God and what beautiful thing God has given us, but to see the glory of God in the imagery of our marriages and in the intimacy of our marriages. Not that men are owed intimacy, but that men are owed a bride who loves them and brides are owed a husband who loves and pursues them. And so I believe if we study this more, good will come out of it. A date night, a very expensive date night, happened the week, this week because I conviction came in hard on, oops, what am I doing? This is scripture speaking to me. 
And yet, I would hope that if you take this approach and you go through it and you see the beauty that what comes out of it is a better love of God through your spouse, a better pursuit for our young men coming up, that Ezra and Emerson will know how they are to pursue a woman but not stir up love until it awakens and to continue the pursuit after marriage, and that my daughter, Everly, will desire a man rightly but not stir up love, and that she will love and give him praise and compliments and have patience for a football-watching, sock-on-the-ground-leaving husband who needs to be reconciled and love her better. Um, if we do these things, I, I would imagine not only are we going to glorify the Lord, but we will see health in the church, parenthood, childhood, in a way that is beautiful. And I would say, lastly, this is how it fits in the wisdom literature. If you see it this way, if you teach this way, it is wisdom literature. But of course, the women get the more beautiful version of the wisdom literature, I feel like, and the men get the beautiful in their own way proverbs that are just straight out, lined out, uh, given to you. All right, let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, may, may this church be a church full of men who memorize scripture, who memorize the Song of Solomon and voice it out loud to their wives. Lord, may this be a church that pursues their wife, but in, in the correct way. Lord, I pray that we uh, are a church that has young men who do not lust after women in their heart, Lord, but desire a woman for the beauty of her image of you. Lord, similarly, I pray that the, that the women of this church will rightly desire men who will lead and be appropriate shepherds in their household that will help take care of them, not just financially, Lord, but more importantly, spiritually, that they will represent the, the headship that ultimately is headed by you, Lord. I pray most of all that as we study this and, and as we prepare ourselves for worship this day, that the result of all of reading and study of your scripture is a better understanding of you and your nature, a better understanding of the work of Christ, and a outflowing of better behavior that comes as a result of a love of Christ, a pursuit of Christ, a desire and passion for Christ, so that one day when we do get to enter the eternal garden, we get to experience the peak pleasure that there is, which is unity with your son and unity with the God where there is no sun because your glory shines too brightly, Lord. I pray, I pray that that is the result of the teaching this day. In your son's name we pray. Amen.